Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, a very uh, important conversation with Joyce Carter, the CEO of the Halifax International Airport Authority. Uh, we learn a lot about how that airport is uh, functioning, especially post-pandemic. But uh, more importantly, this is an example of a government policy that was back, done back in the 90s that has really led to a completely renewed uh, infrastructure for flying in Canada. The, the decision by, the, I think it was the Liberal government at the time, uh, to create these uh, airport authorities has, uh, has opened up an incredible amount of reinvestment in most of the major airports in the country. In the case of the Halifax International Airport, since the authority took it over, they have spent three quarters of a billion dollars improving that airport. A lot of that is driven by passenger fees, of course. Um, in addition to that, by the way, as Joyce uh, told us post the interview, the value of the airport when they took it over was $88 million. They've got, they've spent almost closing in on a trillion dollars. That's that's still owned by the federal government. In addition to that, they spent $100 million in rent. So what a deal the feds have on their hands. <laughs> that's what a deal. What a deal. Listen, the first question is, is there a community board that you haven't sat on over the years, Don? I mean, we talked about the partnership <laughs> in the chamber and now the airport. Is there any, any boards you've missed? Well, there's a couple that I, I would like to serve on, but I was really pleased to be on this uh, particular board. And, and for disclosure purposes, I was, uh, interesting enough, the, the chair of the, the Halifax uh, uh, Chamber at the time, which had been recently amalgamated, and we pushed hard for the authority. We pushed, it was one of the things that we pushed hard for at the time. We saw the importance of the airport as an economic uh, enabler. And as uh, Joyce has pointed out, it, it, it creates uh, a lot of employment and economic activity. Um, and it's extremely important, not just for Nova Scotia, but for the whole region. And um, that's, that's the reason I wanted to be on that board. I saw it as an economic development uh, you know, play. Not big surprise for you because you know I'm, my interest in economic development, but they have really delivered. They have delivered in a way that you know nobody anticipated in the early days, and uh, they've done a lot of great things on cargo, as an example. Cargo facilities are fantastic. They've expanded the airport by double. Um, you know they've uh, they've done a, a lot of uh, a, a lot of really good things uh, yeah. to create uh, uh, traffic, and so like it's a, it's one of the basic, biggest success things that have happened in the last 20 years in Atlantic Canada, and sometimes it doesn't get the attention it deserves. No, that's right. And there's a tremendous contrast. They privatized rail around the same time and air services to this region for Nova Scotians, for Maritimers, uh, for Atlantic Canadians has gotten much, much better. But local service on the rail side has gotten dramatically worse. So I don't know. Right. It, it, it's a very interesting contrast around how one of those things works so well. The other one, you know, the most of the rail traffic now, they're just trying to get that cargo from from Halifax or whatever as far as quickly as they can into central Canada. Very little interest in the local markets here in the region, both uh, cargo and passenger, but an interesting contrast. But yes, I mean, I think she, you know, the airport had real challenges as coming out of the pandemic. They've got a a plan to get back to uh, 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 fiscal sustainability or profitability by 2021. 
uh, and they expect passenger traffic yeah. right to, by twenty sorry twenty twenty four twenty twenty five. So um, yeah, so I, I think the listeners are going to be impressed by what's been happening at the airport, uh, by the vision, by the new strategy, and and uh, Joyce's comments about about sort of regional air traffic in general within the Maritimes and, and trying to find ways to elbow her way and, and, and try to get that better. Because right now she told us, you know, we're, we're what, what did she say, 10% off the rest of the country in terms of passenger yep. numbers coming back. So why this region is going to suffer more than the rest of the country is, 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 is a bit annoying for sure. Well, you know, this is the big weakness uh, that has been in the in this region for some time. You know, the ability to fly from Halifax to uh, Charlottetown direct is no longer there. The fly direct to Sydney from Halifax is no longer there. Fly direct from Fredericton to Halifax. I mean, those are those are significant, uh, you know, trips. And now now you have to go through Montreal to do that. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I know you're interested in is public policy on this issue. It's outrageous, frankly, that the federal government allows carriers like WestJet and Air Canada to cherry pick only the most profitable routes when they've got really, the, you know, the two of them have an oligopoly going in terms of the marketplace. There should be obligations to serve markets of certain sizes, even if they don't make a bucket full of money. And this is a this is a weakness that we have in Canada, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. There needs to be public interest the same way you wouldn't close a highway uh, just because there was a few less cars on the road because of some event like a pandemic, right. you know, you have to have the same kind of thinking. I understand the dynamics are, are different in air travel, but it, it's incredibly strategic. This region is starting to grow its population. Halifax is booming. Uh, and a big part of that is people moving to the region from all parts of the world. And if you strangle yeah. air traffic, and by the way, it's a lot worse in the other airports than, than even in Halifax. Um, you know, I think I think we need to be thinking about the public interest when it comes to air transportation, for sure. Yeah, and just as a final comment, you know, as a as a past, uh, actually, actually, as an original uh, board member, you know, the early days were really, really tough. People don't remember it, but we had a we had a huge fight with uh, David Colinette, who was the minister of transport, who was not a nice guy to deal with, and tried to tried to you know basically screw Halifax in, in a deal. We, we outweighed him and got a, a, a deal that we could live with. But I'm really proud of what's been done there over the, over the course of uh, the takeover by the authority. And I, I really think that, you know, the leadership uh, of, that Joyce has provided in particular over the last few years has really been quite outstanding. And uh, I acknowledge that leadership uh, as being really important to uh, getting us back to a recovery uh, for the airport quicker, uh, as quick as possible. So... Uh, with that introduction, uh, here's our conversation with Joyce Carter. We are pleased to be joined on this episode of the Insights Podcast by Joyce Carter, the President and CEO of the Halifax International Airport Authority. Joyce, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Don. Uh, by the way, congratulations on being recently selected by Atlantic Business Magazine as one of Atlantic Canada's top 25 most influential women. How did that make you feel? That made me feel pretty good. I have to say it's um, <laughs> I've had a few awards over the years, but this one is special because of all the work I do with women in aviation. So I was absolutely delighted. Yeah, well, congrats. Thanks. Joyce, you've been with the Airport Authority since its early beginnings. Tell us a little bit about your career path, your background, uh, and uh, how you got to your current role as President and CEO of the Halifax International Airport Authority. 
Sure. Thanks for the question, David. So I've been with HIAA, you're right, um, over 20 years. I joined just when we became an airport authority. So that was back in 1999. Um, I had been working prior to that in uh, the um, audit environment uh, with Deloitte and then as well had spent some time with some private uh, businesses in Halifax in real estate development uh, and management. Had not worked in aviation prior to uh, joining the airport authority, so was delighted to join them at the time of transfer. I came in as vice president of finance, um, assumed the role of CFO a few years after that. In 2008, uh, Chief Strategy Officer, and then stepped into the role of uh, CEO back in 2014. So really has been quite a journey working with the team here and working with our board and our management team. Almost always felt like I had this front row seat um, of watching uh, everything that happened and being able to contribute, uh, contribute to some significant uh, development and growth uh, through the years. So it's been an absolutely wonderful journey for sure. So Halifax Stanfield International Airport is an important economic enabler, uh, not only in Nova Scotia, but across the region. How many people work at the airport and what is its overall economic impact? Yeah, so you're right. It contributes significantly uh, to the economic uh, growth in the province. Lots of folks are surprised by these numbers. So this is an annual number, I'll quote pre-pandemic um, first. So $3.8 billion annually in, ec in economic output uh, from Halifax Stanfield to the Nova Scotia economy and over 6,000 jobs on site. So when you think about that, it's almost 2% uh, of the job uh, workforce in Nova Scotia and certainly is a significant contributor to our economy. Those numbers came down, no surprise to anyone, uh, during the pandemic. So last year, uh, about $2.2 billion and about 4,000 workers, but certainly we're set to see those numbers return uh, to the pre-pandemic levels in 2025. So we're on a good path to recovery. Well, Joyce, I, you know, I had the pleasure of being on the founding board of uh, HIAA, so I maybe know more than most, but uh, we'd like to uh, provide a better understanding of how, uh, you know, uh, a community-run airport actually works. Uh, you have a community board of directors that governs HIAA. Can you tell us how the how the board is nominated uh, so we get an understanding about the governments? Yeah, and I'm glad you called it that, Don, a community-run uh, board, because it absolutely is. So we're a non-share capital corporation, and our board is uh, nominated by, I refer to it as five entities. So the Government of Canada is one, uh, the Province of Nova Scotia is another, the Halifax Regional Municipality uh, is the third. The Chamber of Commerce, so the Halifax Chamber of Commerce uh, is the fourth. But as well, the board itself has the ability to appoint uh, members to our board. So a maximum of 14 uh, members can exist on the board. And the appointment terms are three uh, maximum uh, appointments of three years each, so up to nine years, with the exception of one director can serve up to 12 years. So absolutely, by having the nominators I just mentioned, it very much exists for the community and is here to meet uh, the needs of the community, which is why our economic uh, impact is so significant, because we spend a fair amount of time trying to align our mandate and our objectives with uh, the various community organizations to be sure uh, we get the growth and see the growth that the community so deserves. So 
it works quite well. The structure we have today works quite well and is quite unique. Well, one of the reasons I was so interested in uh, the authority was the, the possibilities of what could happen if it was a community-run um, institution. And of course, yeah. that, that airport has com been completely transformed since uh, the formation of the authority. A lot of money has been invested uh, in, that, in that airport. It's one of the best airports now in the country. And I'm, I'm personally very proud of that. And I know you are as well. Yeah. Uh, the pandemic severely uh, suppressed uh, travel activity. Uh, I guess everybody knows that. Um, and that obviously uh, impacted the airport and its finances. Um, but tell us a little bit about the overall financial impact on HIAA and how did you actually stay afloat during that period because you had virtually no revenue coming in? Exactly. So it's based on what you may know as a user pay system. So for sure, we're, we're a non-share capital corporation. We have no shareholders, so no equity. Um, and when you have no users, you literally, as you say, Don, have no revenue. And so our only source of revenue was a few during the pandemic, but not many. So fees. But again, if you have no users, you have no ability to change your, your fees and, and have that impact your revenue. Uh, but as well is borrowings. And so I have to say that certainly the federal government did provide some support uh, through the pandemic. And then what uh, wasn't supported by way of uh, the federal government was borrowed. So we had not had a loss at HIAA um, since the one time only and since the year 2008. Um, obviously, the economic collapse in 2008 caught us a little off guard and late in the year. But up until that time, we had been able to have a nice return um, on our revenue each year thereafter. So 2020, first year we've had a loss, and that was a $40 million loss. So numbers that are very difficult as a previous CFO for even me to say. Uh, 2021, an additional $35 million loss. And although we haven't um, we haven't released our 2022 results yet, and we're uh, soon about to do that, uh, again, we will have another loss in 2022. And so our team together very early um, spent some time understanding how much of our expenses we could cut. And as you say, we provide an essential service. So you're running a business, but closing was not an option. So what we had to do to remain open and provide the essential, uh, essential service we did. And then, frankly, uh, Don just borrowed what we needed to get us through the other side of the pandemic. So we took on an additional $150 million in debt. Typically debt we would borrow to allow us to do our infrastructure. I uh, took that on early in 2021 and it is there today to service us until we come to the other side uh, of the pandemic. So you talked earlier about the path back to sort of normalcy by 2025. Is that also from a financial perspective? Do you, When do you think you'll be back to um, a break even or surplus position? Yeah, so we're hoping 2024 is our first year to break even, and that still is the case um, today. I know the recovery has been a little bit different than we thought uh, back a couple of years ago, but we're looking to have uh, a positive uh, bottom line in 2024. And our plan uh, right now, based on uh, everything we know, is that our passenger levels will return to pre-pandemic uh, levels in 2025. So that's about a year later than we had predicted way back in 2020 when we were looking at how long this may take. Uh, but certainly 
it is, um, you know, <laughs> the end and, and obviously the, the return to profitability is much closer now than it was uh, back then. So we feel pretty certain about that. There's a number of um, unanticipated new costs, as you may well know from any business, obviously, that you speak with. So when we look at the inflation rate, certainly we didn't anticipate that. Um, we didn't anticipate the high cost of labor and the shortage uh, in our plan uh, a few years ago. So certainly some of our costs are higher than what we thought, which is maybe going to drag out our recovery a little bit uh, more because it's a very sensitive industry. It's not like we can easily increase fees to cover those expenses. Um, but know that we pulled uh, pretty well every lever we could through the pandemic to be sure we have the liquidity to get us through the other side. And we feel uh, still feel very, um, you know, very certain about that. The other uncertainty I'll just mention uh, before we leave this question is around air service. And of course, you would have seen uh, WestJet um, and what's happened with the carriers. So Air Canada focused more on the east, WestJet focused more on the west. Um, we were quite disappointed to lose our ser uh, service to Europe with WestJet uh, in 2023. So that'll make this year a little bit uh, more difficult uh, in terms of our recovery. We'll actually have a, our passenger numbers uh, we're anticipating will be lower this summer than they were last summer, which is a real interesting uh, position to be in. But uh, also know that we're working very hard to recover that service to Europe because it's really important for the tourism industry, in particular in Nova Scotia. Yeah, I had used that WestJet service to Europe out of Halifax. It was very convenient. So and, convenient. Uh, I hate to, to lose that. I, I, we, we keep talking about building back better, and I'm, I'm at the point now where I'll take just what we had before, build back at least the same <laughs> as before. I think that's probably should be the target now. Yeah. Um, so is there any, are you lobbying the government or advocating with government for any support or any policies that might uh, help you recover faster? Yeah, we are. So we continue to lobby. I just spent a day on the Hill last week um, talking to anyone who will meet with us about uh, what airports need uh, to recover. Certainly, uh, rent and Don, I know this is a sensitive topic with you and continues to be for our management team and our board. We pay <laughs> a significant amount of um, ground lease rent. And so this is an agreement uh, that was made when the uh, airports were transferred uh, back in our case in 2000. And so to give you an example, last year alone, in the year that we are going to lose money, uh, we as Halifax Airport uh, had to pay uh, $8 million in ground lease rent to, uh, to Transport Canada. It was forgiven for a period of time during the pandemic, but full uh, full rent uh, resumed at the beginning of last year, so the beginning of 2022. So we continue to lobby, uh, if not for entire rent forgiveness, to um, then, if not that, then to allow us to take that rent and reinvest it in some of the really important initiatives that we have to do uh, here at our airport and at uh, other airports. So you think about some of the sustainability work and development that uh, we want to do and need to do is give us that liquidity back so we can do that work uh, even sooner than we otherwise would be able to. So that is uh, one of the main things we lobby for sure. I lobby for from a financial perspective. And on the policy side, there's so much that can be done um, with, as an example, bio, biometrics and things that we can do to ease the transition at our borders. And we definitely need the federal government to make some changes to allow that to take place. And, and the time now couldn't be better, um, you know, when we're all sort of suffering from um, certainly increased uh, traffic at the airports, reduced workforce, 
obviously we're back and, and you'll see this in Halifax if you've traveled, we're back to several banks. So it uh, creates congestion at certain times. Some of the policies around, as an example, biometrics could help us. Uh, and we do need the federal government to, to allow us to do that. So we are we are working hard on that as well. I want to just get back to passenger activity for a second. You've already uh, touched on it, but uh, it would be helpful to give our listeners kind of prior to the pandemic, the scope of growth that has been achieved since the authority took over the airport. Can you give us a sense of uh, that those numbers? I think that would be very interesting. That's a really interesting question, Don. So back at the time of transfer, uh, the airport would have processed under 3 million passengers. So it would have been roughly 2.8 million passengers in 1999. Our highest year, which was 2018, most people think it's 2019, but it actually was not because of the grounding of the MAX aircraft, the Boeing uh, 737 MAX. You may remember that issue mm. was grounded in 2019. So our highest year was 2018, and our passengers at the time were 4.4 million. And so we've had exponential growth, um, in particular over the last 10 years. And one of the things, um, you know, that was so great uh, over, say, the five to six years leading up to the pandemic is we very carefully aligned. We talked about economic development. We very carefully aligned our mandate and our work. Um, remember the Ivany report uh, with the work that had been done by the provincial government in terms of uh, economic growth. So tourism, trade, immigration, foreign investment, we looked at all those objectives and said, okay, how can we help the province achieve them and aligned our work with that. And so this is where you would have seen all the service uh, to Europe that we mentioned earlier. So the, the you, you raise a really good point, uh, Don, is that the growth had been uh, tremendous. Obviously, that all came to a grinding halt in March of 2020. Our passenger numbers in 2020 were less than a million. Remember our team going back and, you know, trying to figure out when we had passengers of less than a million back in the 70s. Um, and then 2021 was about the same, just around a million. 2022, um, you know, once those restrictions lifted in the spring of 2022, we had a dramatic increase. Everyone wanted to travel and did. And so 2022, we finished at roughly uh, 3.1 million passengers, so triple the year before. Um, we were last year, good stack for Halifax, so we were last year the second uh, fastest recovering what we call Tier 1 airports, so the largest airports in Canada. We were the second, fast, uh, second fastest recovering airport. And we traditionally are the eighth busiest uh, airport in Canada, Canada, and in 2022 we were the sixth. So we jumped two places ahead. So we had banner year last year, without question, did much better than we had anticipated. As I mentioned earlier, and I should say, Don, most of that recovery was on the domestic side. So international, mm -hmm. people were still reluctant uh, to travel. We did great with our Europe service, less so uh, in our US service. But uh, fast forward to this year, and we will see a little, we still anticipate an increase over, over um, 2022, but we will see a settling of our uh, tourism numbers for sure, and our traffic into Europe because of the retrenchment of uh, WestJet. You you already indicated that you're not likely to return to pre-pandemic numbers until 2025. Yes. It's my impression that that has nothing to do with demand for travel, but everything to do with the lack of equipment, staff, 
routes uh, that the airlines are flying. It's not really a demand issue. It's a supply problem, isn't it? It's totally a supply problem. So for sure, um, not only was the pandemic very difficult for airports, it was equally as uh, difficult for the air carriers. Um, And the ramp up last year was difficult for them. So they would have had the largest ramp up um, and restart a business than they've ever had in a shortest period of time. Significant layoffs, so more than half of uh, the aviation workers in the country were laid off through the pandemic. And so turning around and restarting that and looking at your routes, I mean, you're basically starting from scratch. We had to negotiate with pretty well every carrier to restart the routes we did. So we were down to four out of 46 in the lowest part of the pandemic. Um, So very competitive, uh, limited aircraft because a lot of the orders had been canceled. Um, No training of pilots. uh, So all of that was halted as everyone was trying to cut their costs. And for sure, a lot of layoff of staff. And when we had a few false restarts, so restrictions get lifted, people start to travel again, employees are hired back, and then restrictions come out again. Omicron is a good example of that. Employees are laid off. It just became very difficult to um, to recruit and retain workers in our business. So the startup has been quite difficult operationally, without a question. The carriers have focused the aircraft on the most profitable routes. Those aren't always in Atlantic Canada. So we could talk about Atlantic Canada separately, but for sure, those routes are point to point. They're in the larger aircraft. You know, we don't have a whole lot of regional service. I'm I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that as well. So it just is a lack of supply versus demand. If you were to be in the terminal building today and it's March break this week, it's just busy as can be, but certainly um, very different than what it used to look like back in 2019 without a question. So the HIAA released a new strategic plan last year. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the priorities over the next few years? I think you've talked a little bit about the recovery piece of it, but were you able to put a little bit of mind share toward any, anything more strategic than just getting back on your feet? Yeah. One of the things we focused on in the you know middle of a crisis tell you just so just couldn't be more um, you know reflective of the work during the crisis and how our people really stepped up so in the middle of a crisis we were actually in a fairly favorable position at Halifax Stanfield because the day the pandemic got declared we were meeting together as a management team putting the finishing touches on our long-term master plan and strategic plan And so obviously that all got halted. And I say a little bit fortunate because we hadn't launched any of them. We hadn't started in particular any construction work that we may have needed for future growth. Um, Took the first, for sure, 18 months to to get our way through uh, the depths of the pandemic and then really tried to, as a team and as a community, focus on the future. So like you mentioned, new strategic plan. It's a five-year plan that took effect in uh, 2021. 2022, sorry, we completed it in 2021. And in addition to all the pieces about recovery, which was a bit of a shot in the dark at the time, to be honest, um, but is actually playing out fairly close to what we anticipated. When you think about what's going on at the time, so much related to uh, people. So we, of course, had the impact on the pandemic, everyone working from home, the change that's coming with the workforce as a result of that. We had the Port of Peak events going on. We had the George Floyd movement. We had all of that. Is our people really stepped up 
And you will see in our new strategic plan a real focus on our community and on our people. We want to be a very inclusive organization. We want to be equitable. We want to go back to our roots. We want to look at our Indigenous connections. Uh, we want to focus on partnerships with our community. And you'll see a lot of that reflected in the plan that you necessarily wouldn't have seen in the, in the previous plan. You'll also see the other area I'll mention that was more focused than the previous plans, and there's been many over the years, is on sustainability. So we looked as well at our sustainable operations, not only from a financial perspective, because, and Don, from the time you're on the board, you'll know this, as a lot of the diversification was around, it still required a passenger in your terminal building. So our diversification strategy wasn't as strong as we had thought. Um, so look at our financial sustainability, look at our social sustainability. So a lot of the people stuff I just chatted about, but as well, and as important, obviously, is the environmental sustainability. You know, you remem may remember some of the early times of, you know, when there were no planes literally in the sky, you could go on flight radar and see just a few is that did have an impact on the environment without question. And so are people going to travel differently coming out of the pandemic? Is business travel going to be, because now you can pretty well dial into any meeting, is it going to be the same as it used to be? Are corporations going to reduce travel for sustainability initiatives? So we spent a lot of time talking about that and have a whole new sustainability plan that is the focus of the next 5, 10, and, and obviously 20 years and beyond. So those areas are, are really new for us and really came from kind of the massive consultation with not only our community stakeholders, but as well, our airport uh, workers. So we're very pleased with that. One of the most uh, significant achievements by HIAA was the approval for U.S. pre-clearance in Halifax. I was on the board at the time. I don't think many people understood how important that was. And you, may, you will recall that was a big battle. It was a huge <laughs> That involved U.S. senators, in, in fact, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> Tell us about the advantages of having this type of uh, pre-clearance at Halifax Stanfield. You're right, Don. Is it is a huge advantage, and I'm still surprised how much um, time I have to spend explaining what it is and why it's important to our region. Mm. And so, U.S. pre-clearance, delighted, it opened in 2006, I believe, um, and absolutely is important to the region. The only facility um, that it exists uh, today, east of Montreal. And so Halifax should do absolutely everything it can to keep it. And, and, and you say, why is that important? What it does for us is it allows us to have flights into the U.S. that can connect into any airport in the U.S. So you don't need to have customs facilities on the other end. You can pre-clear customs here and arrive as a domestic passenger at any airport in the U.S. So when we're out doing business development, we're not the largest airport in Canada by far, we're not one of the large hubs, is our options to negotiate space, slots, uh, times to land in airports in the U.S. now opens up to any airports, not just those that have a U.S. preclearance facility. So our business development is obviously much broader because of that. And what it also means, it means that you as a passenger, as you're traveling through Halifax-Stanfield, and, and if you clear here, then obviously you don't have to do that on the other end. If you're arriving in an airport that's your final destination, you just leave as if you're a domestic passenger. 
But as well, if you're connecting on within the US, your connection times can be quite tight because you don't have to clear customs when you arrive. So to your point, Don, it certainly is a, a, an area I worried a lot about through the pandemic. We had no US flights for a very long time. We fought hard to get those back for Halifax and eventually we did. Um, but I was really worried um, that that facility may uh, close temporarily or worse permanently. And so we're very happy we negotiated a new agreement during the pandemic and happy to say that it is operating at the same hours as it was uh, pre-pandemic, something that was really important to us uh, when we looked at, you know, where are we going to be, the strategic planning and what do we need, what are those strategic advantages that we need to preserve, pre-clearance being one of them. So thank you for the hard work way back when, because it absolutely <laughs> is, was all worth yeah, it. We could we could write a book about that episode, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, another key advantage uh, for Halifax-Stanfield is the fact that the airport can operate 24 hours a day. How does this help from an operational and strategic perspective? Right. So that's a really good point. Again, all through great negotiations with the city of Halifax is to preserve our 24-7 operations. We're not in an urban core, although I, you know, I often worry about the residential developments uh, creeping up close to the airport. Um, therefore, we don't have the noise uh, issues that we do for um, that some of our counterpart uh, airports across the country do. Why is that important? Why is it that we are able to operate 24-7? If you had been here during the pandemic, it was mostly only cargo flights and they operate at night. So cargo is a big part of our business and it is important to us that we're able to receive cargo flights during the night without the uh, restrictions, which we don't have today. Uh, we're able to do the cargo, but as well, um, our location on the Eastern Seaboard, early startup, last, you know, your last flight in, in, in at the end of the day, doesn't have to be at 11 o'clock at night. Those flights go to uh, two in the morning and then the sun flights start at 3 a.m. So we're really able to expand and grow. Um, certainly we shoot above our weight in terms of passengers on a per capita basis. Uh, for the province and for the region and we're able to continue to grow and expand that provide all the great services to our customers cargo and uh, passenger because we have a 24 uh, 7 operation we don't have to close for six or eight hours at night so that's again an advantage like us preclearance that we should work hard to keep can you give us a, a quick update on intra maritime region Air travel. Are you are you seeing? Are there any flights at all from Charlottetown to Halifax, Cape Breton, Moncton to Halifax, Fredericton? Is there any of that going on, or is it all just direct into Montreal and Toronto and possibly Ottawa? Yeah, there's in the Maritimes. There is there is no flying within the Maritimes right now. So it was one of the first things to go uh, during the pandemic. We remember when Evis Air used to do some of that flying, and certainly is the hardest to recover. Why it's so hard to recover is a combination of a whole bunch of things. We talked about the pilot shortage, so that's definitely one of the reasons. The other is finding the right size aircraft to fly between those cities. As an example, you just mentioned, like we don't even have service to Sydney, Nova Scotia today. 1972, I think, is when that service started. And we had it every, you know, every year up until the pandemic. And so it has traditionally not been an overly profitable um, service for the carriers, those that service um, uh, the regional flying in Atlantic Canada. So certainly one of the first ones they pulled and sadly maybe one of the last ones to come back. 
Having said that, um, service to Newfoundland is a little bit better, but again, nowhere near what it used to be. The Q4, which is the smallest aircraft we have right now in the region, is a good size for Newfoundland, but it's too large. Um, the Q400 is too large for New Brunswick PEI. So we have a couple of carriers we're working with uh, that do fly smaller aircraft and definitely speaking to, uh, we're a member of the Atlantic Canadian Airports Association, speaking to all my colleagues in Atlantic Canada to see how we can get that service back. Halifax is a hub, has always been a hub, not only in the region, but across Canada with the Europe service. And it's just really important that we connect the communities in the Maritimes and in Atlantic Canada uh, for uh, service. So those communities, like you say, David, now, if they have if they have service, and some of them are at 20 and 25% of 2019, which is horrible numbers, if they have service, it's a, you know, twice a week to Toronto or Montreal to then connect that way. So if you have to get from Charlottetown to Halifax, and you want to fly, you got to go to Montreal, or Fredericton, same, and come back. Yeah, I'm doing some work in Cape Breton, the same problem. It's easier to drive than it is to fly, not to mention the huge price differential. I think that's a real challenge. There's no opportunities for what they used to call a milk run, where you start in Halifax, drop down in Moncton and keep going. Like a porter does some of that through Toronto. There's no, the economics of that don't work. Not yet. I think they will eventually. But right now, if the, if the, if the aircraft is big enough to go point to point, they're the economics are better to do that. And so, as you know, every flight you've been on is full. And so, yes, the, I think that math will work eventually, but just not yet. The economics aren't there. We've even seen like PAL do some startups, St. John's into Fredericton and just the summer, and then they, they're not reintroducing it. It just didn't work for them. So, you know, it's definitely, we, we have some looking forward to recovery and seats in the market for the rest of this year. Atlantic Canada is about 10% behind the top uh, 60 airports across the country. So that is something we need to work on as, as a community. We need to understand why that is. Our service is about 10, our recovery is about 10% below and uh, work hard with the government and, you know, with the provinces and with the carriers to have that service uh, restored. I'm not going to get on my soapbox, but I've always wondered why governments, particularly provincial governments, don't see air transportation as strategic. Yeah. You know, if you if you think about the road infrastructure, that's like 100 percent government focus and other parts of the transportation system, it's like almost ignored. And I, I don't want to be too harsh, no. uh, but what's going on right now in the Maritimes in, in terms of air transportation, there's public policy issues. It's not just about, you know, economics or the cheapest possible or the most convenient possible routes for the for the airlines. But anyway, sorry, I won't I won't editorialize. No. I will ask you if there's any kind of coordinated efforts underway to get that back to somehow reestablish some of that connectivity? There is. So we are at, we are working together as the Atlantic Canadian airports and definitely working with a few government uh, departments um, and actually just have just had a meeting yesterday actually to, to look at what we can suggest is the best way to get that quickly. Um, you know, is that support for those routes? I know you've got countries like the U.S. that has the essential services um, program. So if you have communities that are completely cut off, what is the impact of that? Not suggesting our government is going to go there, but those sorts of things as we recover, those sorts of programs may be needed 
till we get past the crisis related to aircraft availability, size of aircraft, pilots, all of that. There may be some support. I would strongly think there's some support there that's required, in particular when you look at Atlantic Canada being 10% behind the rest of the country. Why is that? And why can we not, what can we do to, to support that? It's absolutely so, amazing that we can be 10% behind the rest of the country, even as Halifax and Moncton and yeah. other cities are leading the country for population growth. Yes. So these people, are, they probably have to come here on, uh, you know, what, uh, horses and buggies? Like, how are they even getting here? Right. Anyway, back off the soapbox. So looking ahead, <laughs> what new routes are you hoping to add in Halifax over the next few years to increase choice for a growing population? Are you looking back to try and reconnect Europe? Uh, one point, you guys had flights to Iceland, I believe, years ago. What, what, what's your strategy in ter- terms of these international routes or new Just, routes? So I'll, I'll just quickly take it by sector. So domestic, uh, for sure, the regional service you just mentioned, um, and that includes St. John's. So our service to St. John's is cut uh, dramatically, it used to be our second largest destination, but as well service to Ottawa. I don't know if you've flown to Ottawa lately, but it is difficult to get to Ottawa. So those are the two, um, you know, sort of domestic. Uh, we've got good domestic service, I have to say. We're, we're not doing so bad. We even have a nonstop uh, to uh, YBR now that we didn't have. When we look to uh, international, um, you've already mentioned Europe. So we're working very hard, in particular from a tourism perspective. Tourism numbers were higher in, 20, in 2022 than they were in 2019. And it's because of those flights. Um, we are looking and working hard to get back our Europe service. It, that is not the math. The numbers work. It's about a decision by the carriers as to where they're going to place those assets and the limited resources being pilots. So we need to get those services back. And then the U.S. is the third market that we're focused, uh, um, uh, very focused on. And so we were delighted to get service to New York back in December. So Air Canada flies that uh, daily but we have lost service to some other markets. So Chicago is an obvious one. Um, I'll also just put a little uh, plate in for American Airlines. So American Airlines last summer started a daily Philadelphia flight, a weekly Boston flight, and a weekly uh, Washington flight. And they're bringing those back this summer. So that's going to be great. Uh, the Philly gives you a great connection into the U.S., but definitely we need more seats into the New York, and we would love to get uh, Chicago back as well. So those are some of the focus areas. The cargo has become an increasingly important revenue stream for HIAA. What types of cargo are currently flying in and out of Halifax? And maybe uh, talk to us a little bit about the strategy uh, that you have to grow the segment uh, of, of the revenues. Yeah, so cargo cargo was the bright light through the pandemic, Don. So certainly our cargo, we always measure our cargo by the volume of flights versus uh, passengers, and it overtook passengers during the, uh, car, um, during the pandemic. We opened, one of the things we decided to do as a management team and a board, and I'm just so glad that we had the courage to do this as early in the pandemic, we decided to continue to invest in a project we had started called the Air Cargo Logistics Park. And so last year in um, August of 2022, we cut the ribbon and opened uh, a new logistics park on site. And it is fully leased, uh, half by cargo jet, roughly half of the building by cargo jet, uh, and the other half by first catch. By far, our largest export is live seafood. And by far, the largest proportion of that is live lobster. It continues to be, and it had its ups and, its ups and downs uh, during the pandemic, obviously, as uh, 
the restaurants, in particular in Asia, uh, closed uh, down. So it can, the export numbers continue to go up and down uh, through the pandemic. But certainly last year, equivalent to what we had in 2018, uh, one of our largest years ever in terms of export. Um, some other products uh, that we export, since you asked that, um, electrical equipment, aerospace-related uh, products, pharmaceuticals, uh, during the pandemic, PPE, vaccines, all of that. So, and obviously the parcel delivery. So as you know, online shopping has taken off, cut back a little bit, but certainly uh, we were pretty busy with, uh, you know, when we weren't shipping lobster, we were um, shipping uh, both in both directions, lots of, uh, lots of uh, parcel. Um, parcels. So the other thing I'll mention that people might not be aware of is um, Air Canada Cargo opened and started new service. So both of our mainline carriers, Air Canada and WestJet, have a cargo division, Air Canada and WestJet Cargo. WestJet is just in process of getting theirs certified and Halifax will definitely be an important stop for them. But Air, Car um, Air Canada increased export uh, service out of Halifax during the pandemic and has kept that up. So it's a really important um, strategic uh, carrier market for us. So they currently provide service daily into Liège. Um, and I'll just read these off because it surprises folks. Uh, Liège, Madrid, Frankfurt, uh, and Cologne on to S Istanbul. And so I can't, um, I can't um, overstate the importance of uh, the role that Halifax Stanfield uh, plays in the exports. That was one of the areas we focused on when I mentioned the Ivany report and that we will continue uh, to focus on in the future. And just a small point about our lobsters, we still have many that get on a truck and are driven out of Nova Scotia to then be exported uh, by air from another airport, either in Canada or the U.S. Um, and so part of our strategy, we developed a new air cargo strategy through the pandemic. Part of that is to recapture that product uh, because when it flies out of Halifax Stanfield, it gets to market quicker. So it can be, uh, um, it can be in market in Asia the next morning and it attracts a much higher price because the mortality level is so much lower by not trucking uh, for quite a distance before it is lifted out of another airport. So this new facility is all refrigerated. It's, it's absolutely a wonderful business line for us. Uh, HIAA uh, has a 20 year master plan for the airport that includes not just the terminal buildings, but the lands outside the terminal buildings. And, and I should remind people that uh, the uh, authority does not own the land. The land continues to be owned by the federal government. <laughs> so everything that's developed there is really in the best interest of the federal government long term. All has to be turned back to them. Yep. Yeah, exactly. At some point. But, you know, I, I'd, I'd like you, I know that you've, you're, you've got a lot of uh, thinking going on, a long-term vision for redeveloping the airport lands outside the, ter the terminal. Can you give us the idea of uh, some idea about the kinds of things that are possible? Yeah. on that lands. So there's been quite a bit of redevelopment already. I get that, but you have other plans. I know you do. Yeah. So for sure, the redevelopment you're referring to, we did the roadway system one way in, one way out. We have what we call the uh, um, uh, core area of that where you see Irving today and a few other uh, tenants in there that is ready to be developed for retail. So Retail took a little bit of a step back, as you saw through the pandemic, but certainly we're working on uh, that uh, going forward. So, you know, think about another hotel in that area, 
uh, one that's not connected to the terminal building. Think about some of the food and beverage options. 6,000 people, as I mentioned earlier, work at the airport every day. Um, 10 million people a year go by that road on their car. So the options you have coming in and out of the airport in a retail complex there. But to your point, Don, as you head towards the 102 highway and so you're heading to Truro, there's a significant amount of land there that we lease from the federal government. We do not own that is available for development. So some of the larger developments that could take place, we thought about a stadium at one time. Um, you think about potentially uh, an outlet um, and we had sort of had some interest in that over the years. So that is a fairly large plot of land that uh, has a plan in place today. We're in the process of refreshing uh, it post pandemic as to what the options are, but definitely is some of the um, uh, ancillary revenue that we talked about later that the airport authority itself could shelter from necessarily uh, the passenger revenue. So we've definitely got some longer term plans to do development there. We have had a tremendous amount of interest since the pandemic. We always have, but more so since the pandemic on our airside land. So lands that have access to the airfield are more popular than ever. And so, as you know, or may know, we have two runways, two intersecting uh, runways and not a whole lot of land around those runways that's developed uh, today. So certainly um, the other side of the airport uh, property by where NAV Canada's uh, tower is, is another potential for development of airside uh, lands because lots of companies have great uh, business uh, plans for future growth and um, airside uh, access, access to the runway is a very important strategic part of that. So as well, we're looking at development uh, plans in those areas. Do you have any noteworthy terminal building enhancements anticipated as part of the master plan? I mean, it's funny. I mentioned that day we were sitting in the boardroom ready to put the finishing touches on a 20-year plan. So definitely as we grow, all that has been pushed out by five years or more. But as we grow, we're going to run out of terminal space. Uh, there's no question. So, you know, how do we then continue to expand the gates we need? We're talking 20, 25, 30 years out. Um, discussion around whether we have uh, what's called the finger piers. You'll see them at some of the other airports, long-term development, where we're going to park uh, aircraft for boarding. So that's the longer-term uh, view, David. Short-term, a little bit of work. I mentioned our strategic advantage on the eastern seaboard, our connectivity to Europe. Our, the fact that Halifax Stanfield is a hub in Canada is we have a small facility now that allows you to connect in the international facility if you're arriving and you don't have to go through uh, customs downstairs, get your bags and go back up through pre-board. That is going to need to be expanded as we grow our hub. And so we have uh, a plan today um, that actually we're just kind of waiting for some confirmation uh, of uh, some funding is we call it our international connections facility. So not a huge development, but just to, uh, to ensure kind of like pre-clearance done when we built the shell, just to be sure we have enough room to continue to expand that as we develop, uh, as we develop our connectivity, both in the region and obviously through Canada. So those are the main uh, projects. Joyce, I, I, this would be helpful. Like, Give us an idea of the square footage when you took over the mm -hmm. terminal and the, what that number would be today. That would be yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, I, I know it's double, but Don, I'd probably get the numbers wrong to say what it was to what it is. So 
for sure it's almost double from when we took it over and mm. uh, available space would have been 60,000 whole room space square feet and obviously much more than that today so it um you would have seen you know one of the most one of the biggest questions i get is you know what are we going to see when we come if we haven't traveled for two years and if you've traveled recently, and we did this just prior to the pandemic, when you come up to the top of the stairs and are in the hold room, the big, beautiful expansion that we did there with the glass. And, and it just obviously you feel when you're at your gate that you're not sitting on top of each other. So expansions mm-hmm. like that for growth have happened over the years. Um, yeah, good question. Remember the old international arrivals area? So like, just think about <laughs> even just international arrivals today compared to what it used to be. It's at least three times the size it used to be and the preclearance is all new. So it's double what it used to be. Thanks. So travel, tra- traveling by air can be stressful. We, everybody has stories. I have stories, <laughs> pretty <laughs> impressive stories, actually just in the last few weeks. Um, uh, Halifax has a pretty good reputation, though, when it comes to customer service, particularly around the screening, but also just in general. Um, what is the airport authority doing to improve the pa- passenger processing and make the flying experience as easy as possible? Yeah, so we installed Katza Plus a few years ago. I uh, remember spending a lot of time back in 2019 getting our Katza facility expanded. And so that has made our throughput uh, quite a bit easier. We do have the priority lanes. People might not realize they're still there. So when you're coming up to Katza, if you just kind of stick to the far left, there are priority lanes there for Nexus card holders. Or if you've got, um, you know, if you're flying on a, on a business class ticket, you definitely can be assisted through that. Or if you're a family uh, traveling together, uh, disabled can all go through the priority line. But one thing we're looking at that the community probably isn't aware of, um, it's called virtual queuing. Have you heard of virtual queuing? So virtual queuing, first time I heard it, I thought, what in, you know, what in God's name is virtual queuing? So we are looking at what's called virtual queuing, and it allows you to pre-book your time uh, in security. So roughly, if you know when you're traveling, there will be a special line. So Don Mills, you're catching a flight on you know Wednesday at 6 o'clock. You, as soon as you um, uh, have your information on your flight time, you can go in and pre-book the time you go through pre-board. And it's actually a, um, it is actually a special uh, lane for those that you'll get a QR code that you scan that you get into, and it is meant to be a much faster process for you. So that is something that has been tested at a few other airports in Canada and has been extremely um, successful. So we are. Stay tuned on that, but we're definitely looking at that uh, here for Halifax Stanfield. It'll make your experience even better than it is today. Uh, I think you mentioned earlier uh, the need for um, more biometrics uh, to speed the process of uh, uh, processing passengers. Can you just uh, tell us about a little bit more about the facial recognition technology that you might have under consideration uh, and maybe it's it's part of a, lo- a broader national uh, uh, program, but uh, tell us a little bit more about those efforts. Yeah, so I'll I'll give you a great example. Um, it is a national effort for sure, um, but if you've flown to Europe lately this year, twenty twenty three, or even late in twenty twenty two, you would know that when you arrive and you go through customs, you can go through that whole process with actually. without actually seeing an officer. So you can present all steps of that process electronically. 
either biometrics or your uh, card um, or your passport will get you right out the gate um, and on your way. Today in Canada, you can't do that because there's a requirement um, in legislation. Even if we had all that in place, there's still a requirement to see a CBSA officer. So that's an example. The technology exists. It is, if it's done right, it's not a security issue that we are working hard as an association, an airports association, to have that in Canada. Some of the difficult circumstances that you would have seen through the summer and even through the holidays, whereby people get backed up, God forbid, on planes, is we just need to process people a lot quicker, as an example, through CBSA and technology, digital me measures, biometrics are going to get us there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, also have mentioned earlier, as part of your long-term new strategy, that the sustainability is the goal on a number of elements. I, I just want to probe a little bit more on that. Can you give us a couple of specific examples of the initiatives that you're working on in that regard? Yeah. So we have a carbon management plan that we developed this year, which is, well, 2022, I shouldn't say this year, which is um, which will see us uh, be carbon neutral by 2050. So that uh, we're delighted uh, to have. But a couple of specific projects, Don. Uh, EV charging stations, if you come to the airport today, you're going to have a hard time finding a charging station in the terminal building or in the parkade, I mean, sorry. So we're looking at expanding uh, the areas where that's available in the parkade, but as well for our employees. So if you're an employee and you park in the employee lot, you have no way to charge your vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, stormwater management. So, and again, you may know from your board time, we spend a fair amount of time managing stormwater. Um, that has changed significantly because of uh, environmental and climate change. And so we are um, working on a plan, which we actually just have and are putting in place um, uh, initiatives to better manage our stormwater. Um, energy efficiency. So we've reduced our energy consumption and have a goal to continue to do so. Obviously, the pandemic helped us do that. But even with full startup, and in months, some days in 2022, some days were hired in 2019 is we have reduced our electricity consumption by over uh, 30%. And that hasn't been without a lot of effort on not only new work and new projects, but actually going back. Um, airfield lighting is a big uh, area for us and changing, as an example, all our airfield lighting to LED lighting. So those are examples of some specific initiatives, but no, there's a broader plan to, to get us where we need to be and, and as importantly, to support our partners so that they can get where they need to be, in particular the airlines, uh, by, by the, uh, the dates that they have set. So we have one last question for you. It's a general question. Uh, and I know you've been in the middle of a turmoil for the last couple of years here with the pandemic and everything else that's gone on. But we, we want to know what gives you the most optimism about the future of HIAA. Yeah, I, I, you know what gives me the most optimism about the future? It's going to sound a little silly, maybe, but knowing what we've been through, like if somebody had said to me three or four years ago, you know, you're going to be in this pandemic that's going to last three years I would have had significant uh, wonder and concern as to how we're going to manage our way through that. My biggest optimism is knowing that we actually can pretty well get through anything. And no matter what comes our way, 
I'm so um, optimistic about the people we have here. And I realize we've been through the layoffs and all of that. We did an employee engagement score. And I remember thinking, we do it every year. We did an employee engagement survey, I should say. We do them every year. Do we really want to do one in 2020 in December at the end of the year? It was our highest score since we started doing those surveys. Our people are what is go- are going to get us through uh, the recovery, which we're well underway. Obviously, a lot of work left to be done. And I'm most optimistic about that. The region, you already mentioned that, David, um, is doing significantly well. And I know we've aligned ourselves to support that. Obviously, financially, we need to we need to have a clear path to get us there. But very optimistic about the right people in the right place at the right time to get the job done. And, you know, we're going to get things thrown our way, but we are very good at adapting and adjusting our plans and um, changing our, our strategy. We're just going to get there in a different way, depending on what happens. So very optimistic. We will continue to be the significant economic uh, contributor that we have been. So I feel very good about that. So on that high note, we'll leave it there. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us today on the Insights Podcast, and we wish you all the best uh, navigating these uh, these turbulent times. Thank you, Let Sam. me just add one comment as a past board meeting, uh, member. Joyce, I just want to say that from my perspective, you and your team have done an outstanding job, and I'm very proud of all the work that's being done at the airport. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.